Hi TBC, I'm Ben White. Uh, as some of you may remember, uh, I was a pastoral intern at your church from 2013 to 2015. I then left to finish my education in England, and now I teach biblical studies at the King's College in downtown Manhattan. So it's a pleasure to speak to you today, uh, even if it's online, because those years spent with you were so formative for me. I'm encouraged by what God is doing in your church, and I look forward to seeing pictures of the new building when it's finished. Before I forget, and before I get going, I would love to continue the conversation after I'm done speaking. So if you'd like to say hi or ask a question about what I said in the sermon, feel free to email me at bwhite at tkc.edu. So that's B, my first initial, white, last name, at tkc.edu. As you know, 2020 has been a crazy year. And the craziest part, especially if you're like me and you live in the U.S., is that we've only just passed the halfway point and there's still a polarized presidential election to get through. But I know that Canada hasn't been immune to the craziness that's occurring stateside, the virus, the protests. So I want to start this afternoon by noting a few storylines that paint a picture of the church in this significant year. And I'll warn you, I didn't pick the rosiest, cheeriest stories, though there are some. Uh, I picked the ones that form what I consider to be a concerning trend. In March, as the coronavirus pandemic began to peak in North America, killing thousands and hospitalizing thousands more, a prominent evangelical and the head of one of the world's largest seminaries said this, I truly believe that predictions of the demise of the local church and associated ministries due to COVID-19 are greatly exaggerated. I predict the gospel will continue to go forth. Pastors will lead sacrificially. God's people will rally. Christ will build his church. In June, a Black Lives Matter protest took place in New Jersey, and as the peaceful protesters marched by the property of a white family, the family, both the men and the women, angrily shouted, All lives matter, and made obscene gestures. This family was subsequently fired by their various employers, and there was a rumor in the media, unconfirmed, that this family attended a local Christian church. And earlier this year, the well-known author and former lead pastor Darren Patrick died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds, the sad culmination of a multi-year struggle to recover from being fired by his church for abusive behavior towards his coworkers. One of the last published pieces of advice that he gave to a young pastor was this. Emotional health is directly connected to spiritual maturity. Your unprocessed emotions are the soil where sin grows. Where are you shut down emotionally. It's been an emotional year, and the Christian church in North America has an emotion problem. 
Take one of the examples I just mentioned. I first read that statement about the pandemic from an evangelical leader on Easter Sunday back in April. As my wife and I took our son for a walk, we walked in the direction of a city called Patterson, New Jersey. It's a, it's a poor place, the ghetto, some people might call it. And even though we were still miles away, we could hear the sound of constant ambulance sirens coming from all directions. This was the coronavirus peak in the New York City metro area. And as I thought about that statement from a seminary president, quarantined at home, proclaiming victory, and acting like the pandemic wasn't a big deal, I couldn't help but feel how insensitive and horrifying it was. And I'm a Christian who believes some of the things that that guy said. I can only imagine what an outsider might have thought as this leader proclaimed victory while others lost their lives. What he said may be factually true, but it wasn't emotionally resonant, and that compromises any positive impact the truth could have had. As Christians, we are too often insensitive. We get angry at the wrong things. The image we put out into the world often isn't hope or joy. And the world is watching. Now, I know some of you are already getting your back up. Do we really need to talk about the emotions? Are Christians really so bad at this? Some people would say that Christians are too emotional and we just need to be more intellectual. As someone who holds a PhD, yes, I agree with that. But Christians are often too emotional only in one direction. We're conditioned to be joyful, sure, to, to smile at church even though we don't feel like it, uh, but we struggle to express more negative, raw emotions and to be gentle toward other people who find themselves on the opposite side of the culture wars as us. Not only that, but our Christian subculture tends to treat emotions as irrational and weak. Women are told to bottle up their emotions. Men are made to feel like they're less of a man when they cry. So many of us labor under the notion that spiritual maturity means not being emotional. And I can hear the explanations now. We know we're called to a kingdom that is not of this world. We know we're just passing through. We know this world is not our home. So when it comes to the difficult, sometimes ugly side of our lives, emotions, we can just glide right over it, bottle it all up, and hopefully Jesus will come back soon. What you're forgetting is who Jesus is. And when you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. He wasn't a disembodied ghost floating around Nazareth. The early church has a great name for him, the incarnate Lord. Incarnate is a nice Latin term meaning in the flesh, embodied, human. And as a person who was God, yes, but also human, Jesus had emotions. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. All the Bible trivia people got that. Jesus cried, yes, at the death of his friend, Lazarus. Jesus also cried in Gethsemane when he faced death himself. He also felt righteous anger toward the Pharisees. And what were his greatest commandments? Love God 
and love your neighbor. Now, love isn't purely an emotion, but you can't deadpan to a family member and say, I love you, and have them believe you. There's an emotional component to love, and Jesus called your church, his kingdom, defined by love, to be the light of the world. So for those of you who are being strained by this belief that spiritual maturity means not being emotional, I've got good news for you. Incarnate Lord, incarnate life. Because Jesus, the God-man, took on the full range of human emotion, you also are free to express the full range of human emotion. In fact, it's a big part of your discipleship, learning when to be sad, when to be joyful, when to get angry. And when we get this right, when we become less insensitive, when we show more joy and suffering, when we stop being hypocrites who say we care about people, but we never let them express their true feelings, it not only changes your life and your relationships for the better, it improves our Christian witness to a worn down world. Now enough from me. Where am I getting this? We need to look at our text for today. Uh, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. So, so please turn there with me if you have a Bible. Otherwise, that's okay. I'm going to read it out for you. So that's 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. It says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you asking for a word, a word uh, not merely to this audience that Peter had in the first century, but a word that comes by your Holy Spirit uh, into our lives here uh, in the 21st century. God, I pray that you would give life to this text, that you would breathe it, speak it, uh, into the lives of those who are listening. Uh, may you come in power and with grace to enable us to think about the things that Peter's talking about uh, and in the end to practice them too. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning was written by the Apostle Peter, which, by the way, is remarkable. A rural fisherman, the same guy who tries to kill a man who has come for Jesus in Gethsemane, Peter's a, a tough dude. Yet here he is talking to the early Christians about being gentle with outsiders. Emotion matters. Now I keep talking about emotion and some of you are probably confused because you don't see a lot of feelings being expressed in this passage. 
There is no reference to crying, no classic Christian appeal to joy. Where's the emotion? Well, you need to understand that most of us have a restricted view of what emotion is. We think of it only in terms of things that we can see, you know, contorted face, a heightened tone, crying. But for decades, neurologists and psychologists have said that emotion includes the cognitive states that give rise to external feelings. So when Peter refers in verse 15 to hope, gentleness, and respect, they're not feelings, it's true. They're primarily attitudes, but they have emotive content. But before we can get to these attitudes or emotions, uh, I want to talk about the first question that Peter answers. Who should fuel our emotions? I already pointed to this earlier when I said, incarnate Lord, incarnate life. The center of our lives, as always, is Jesus. To identify with Jesus in Peter's day, however, was sometimes treated as a crime. One early Christian apologist comments that the Romans accused Christians of the crime of a name, confessing Jesus, rather than the name of a crime. I could say a lot more about suffering this morning and how it plays into our text, but I'll let you email me about that if you're, if you're curious. I want to focus on something else, which is this, that even though these Christians may be suffering for doing good, Peter says, verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It sounds simple, doesn't it? One of the simplest things in the Christian life. It's easier said than done. In 2018, Trinity Western University in British Columbia lost a Supreme Court case to open a law school. You may have heard of this. The Supreme Court ruled in a strong 7-2 decision that placing limits on Trinity's religious expression was reasonable in order to allow full access for LGBTQ students. The problem, said the court, is that Trinity required all students to sign a spiritual life covenant that included traditional views on relationships and marriage. The reactions to this event were predictable. Trinity rightly expressed lament, but others went even further. One Twitter user hailed the decision as Christianophobia. Another said, it's sad, but not unexpected. We Christians know where this is going. And finally, Someone else said this, and I'm quoting again, yet another sad example of how Canada, despite preaching that it is a cultural mosaic, shows that it no longer has a place for Christianity. All potentially true statements, but notice they also sound cynical and defeated. Notice how these Christians' emotional life is controlled by the culture war. And that's a harsh tash maxter. If you look at the demographics in Canada, the decreasing number of Christians and the rise of the unaffiliated, it's going to be a long 21st century for the church. But here's the thing. The world says, be discouraged. But our Lord Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. 
The culture wars stoke division. Jesus offers comfort and belonging. Our society says, sit down. Jesus says, rise from the dead, Lazarus. The world may cut our privileges and halt the upward mobility of our institutions, but you're going to let them take away your joy too? You were made for more than that, and you belong to a better kingdom than whatever kingdom we'd have if we ruled this culture. The pathway, friends, to joy in the face of adversity, the, the pathway to fueling good emotions in verse 15 is this, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, remember who God is. Remember that he's good, faithful, he's loving, and meditate on these things as the world around you crumbles. You could even read a gospel and look at how Jesus responds emotionally in tough situations. Remember, incarnate Lord, incarnate life. Jesus is our example in all things. Now, I don't have time to recount multiple events in Jesus' life, but take one of the most famous, his crucifixion. The human element of this story is devastating. Betrayed by one of his friends, sentenced to death by a kangaroo court, what could be worse? Yet notice how Jesus responds. He pours out his heart to God in Gethsemane, expresses his doubt, then, throughout the whole process, he doesn't dish it out, he doesn't take his revenge, he simply answers truthfully, resists returning evil for evil, and expresses only love and forgiveness on the cross. What a witness that even the soldier supervising his crucifixion couldn't resist. Now, I realize some of you may be feeling like I'm putting you on a guilt trip. I have a friend who, in the middle of his depression, would go to church and wouldn't even be able to sing the songs because they all talked about joy. In his weakest moment, he didn't feel like he had a place in his local church because everyone was always telling him, you need to improve your emotional life. I want you to know that I'm not saying that this morning. In fact, I think sometimes our greatest witness as Christians is simply to express our emotions, even the negative ones. There are too many phony Christians out there. If you're feeling down, you should say so, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes, if you're dealing with a prolonged uh, down mood, a dour mood, uh, that might mean seeking the advice of doctors or therapists. Uh, but as a Bible teacher, what I can say is this. Don't give up on the spiritual side of battling for joy. And I realize how hard that can be. Speaking from personal experience, yes, I can't manufacture joy just by believing harder, by revering Christ as Lord a little bit more, at least not in a day, not, not in a week. You need to broaden your time frame. This is a lifelong project. You won't make much progress in a few days or weeks or months, but over the years and the decades, you will probably find that your faith in Jesus can more and more become the center of gravity in which your emotions orbit. Now, second question. What emotions establish credibility with outsiders? Here I want to transition to the three emotions or attitudes that Peter mentions. And I can only talk about them very briefly. 
They're important, though, because I think you know, I, I know you know, that Jesus matters. At least I've, I've tried to make that clear by now. But sometimes we aren't always clear on what Jesus is trying to do. Here, Peter lays out three characteristics of believers that help us establish the credibility of our faith. In verse 15, Peter lists the first one. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. A whole sermon could be preached on that word reason. In fact, many have been preached. But I want to focus on that single word hope, which comes just after the, the part about offering reasons. Peter assumes that Christians will appear hopeful. If you've ever been on social media, you know we need more of that. Uh, Carl Henry actually once said that the early church did not say, look at what the world has come to. No, they said, look at what has come into the world. Instead of pointing the finger at others, early Christians pointed upwards. These Christians were so God-intoxicated, so convinced that the story of their lives, come inconvenience, come suffering, was going to work out for their good, that they exuded hope. But hope is often misunderstood. Hope is a distinctive trait. It expresses optimism about the future, but it also recognizes that you don't yet have everything that you want to have. It's the emotional embodiment of what the New Testament elsewhere calls strength in weakness. This kind of life matters a great deal in our dark world. Now, I admit, the darkness is hard to see sometimes through the wonderful technologies, the, the summer weather, the relative bliss of being a resident of an industrial society. But in the words of one stand-up comedian, everything is amazing, but nobody's happy. A good example of that is the mental health crisis. Cases of depression, anxiety, and a host of other issues are rising even as wealth and convenience rise too. In that kind of world, our world, the emotional insensitivity of many Christians does not fare well. Do you know, for instance, what the main objection to Christianity is for Gen Z? That's, that's young people born between about 1995 to 2010, okay? What's their main objection? It's not intellectual, it's behavioral. A full one-third of Gen Z, who aren't Christian, think that Christianity is hypocritical, and that's why they're not interested in coming to church. We need, as Christians, to express our hope, to find it again. And that begins, like it did for Jesus, with remembering our coming victory and being able to see our present crisis at the same time. Second, Peter points to gentleness. Notice the flow of thought here in the text. He says, be prepared to give an answer, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Outsiders don't need a bull in a china shop. They need friends. They need neighbors. They need your warmth. In Dallas Willard's book, The Allure of Gentleness, Defending the Faith in the Manner of Jesus, he comments on our passage, and he says this, The call to give an account of your faith is first not a call to beat unwilling people, 
into intellectual submission, but to be the servant of those in need, often indeed the servant of those who are in the grip of their own intellectual self-righteousness and pride. I can relate to some of what Willard says in my role at the King's College in New York City. King's is a Christian college, yes, but it attracts a larger number of atheists and jaded Christians than many other Christian colleges simply due to its location. As the New Testament professor, there's a certain kind of, well, I'll call it a gulp factor. Uh, there's a certain kind of intimidation in walking into classrooms like that because not only do I teach the Bible, I also have to interest some people who enter my class decidedly uninterested. The feedback from those students, though, has been positive, and they usually say something funny like, well, maybe it's because you're Canadian. But what they consistently recognize is that there's a gentleness to my approach. And I'm not particularly original on this. I take my cues from Francis Schaeffer, who founded his Labrie communities around the notion that outsiders to the Christian faith want conversation, not a tract or a set of platitudes. So here's my rule on talking to outsiders. I don't shove truth down their throats. I sit with them, I ask them questions, I listen, I treat them as a fellow human being. And then, only after I've done those things, I speak humbly. I try to offer some kind of answer. And I think there's a big onus here in this practice on older believers to take the lead. Time and age can make you cynical. It's, it's probably already done that to me. Uh, but it can also make you less dogmatic, less convinced of your own opinions. That maturity, that kind of humility, needs to translate into gentleness towards outsiders. Finally, uh, we have respect. It's there in verse 15. The word is actually phabos, meaning fear or reverence. It's the only explicit feeling mentioned in the text, and it's actually probably the most important. The audience that Peter is writing to was good at being respectful. At least we can assume this. The early Christians generally were well known for trying to show that their faith fulfilled the lofty ideas of the Greeks and the Romans. They implicitly respected certain ideas in the culture around them. So much so that an early church leader argued that the philosopher Plato was a Greek Moses uh, as he tried to show that Greek and Roman ideas about the transcendence of God weren't that different from the first five books of the Old Testament. In our day, an area where I sometimes see disrespect toward outsiders is in the Christian education of our children. Many of you are rightly concerned about the claims of our world and how to help your kids navigate those. I understand that. I'm a father too. We often resort, in that case, to worldview education, teaching kids about the biblical foundations for morality, ethics, science, you name it. But the potential collateral damage is that it makes them scared or disrespectful toward any idea that isn't totally Christian or any person who doesn't profess Christianity. I've met people, Christian people, who only describe non-Christians in negative terms and refer to the world only as a dark place. Who's the culprit there? Well, somewhere along the line, they were probably taught about the superiority of the Christian worldview without also receiving 
Peter's instruction to respect outsiders. It's one thing, friends, to be concerned about where society's headed or to point out problems in someone's worldview. It is quite another to descend to cynicism and overlook the good things that God is doing in unexpected places. So when you talk to people outside of the church, or even if you're not talking directly to them and you're just typing something out on social media, be charitable to people, assume the best of them. And doing that doesn't lack discernment. That is discernment. Jesus himself said, treat others as you want to be treated. In all these things, brothers and sisters, I am calling you not to orthodoxy, right belief, or orthopraxy, right behavior, but something more specific. It's what neurologists call orthopathy, right emotion. Our text this afternoon gives you a glimpse of what God is trying to do in the church, in the first century and in the 21st century, and it involves producing right emotion, holding out in hope, with gentleness, with respect towards those who do not yet know Jesus. And we will fail at that times badly. Peter's audience failed too. But the kingdom of God is still breaking in. Jesus came in the flesh. Our incarnate Lord lived an incarnate life. And ever since then, wherever people have confessed Jesus as Lord, they have become more like God and more like themselves. The early church theologian Irenaeus said this, the glory of God is humanity fully alive. God has come and given us life and he is continually making us alive with his grace. The challenge today is to display that grace, to pass it on to others, not merely in the things we say or do, but in how we express ourselves, in hope, in gentleness, with respect, and all for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you that you speak to us, not just in terms of our mind, what we should believe, or our outward actions, what we do, but also our psychology, our inner state, our emotions. God, please help us to hear this call from Peter to us to be respectful, to be gentle, ultimately to show others the hope that we have. God, I pray for these people at TBC that you would help them to embody Christ uh, in their relationships with their neighbors, their family, their friends, whether it's in person or on social media, whatever they may be doing. God, I pray that this world, this chaotic, suffering world would see the church as you see it, that they would see its goodness, its grace, the love. God, help us, despite ourselves, to be the light of the world to our communities. I pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.